0: Returning to the concept of the Logos, the Gnostics gave unusually reverent attention to this concept. The attention is unusual in terms of the level of reverence as well as the type of reverence. For the Gnossens, the Logos was the procreative seed which brought forth the procreative nature of the whole. For example, when God said, let there be light, at the beginning of the Bible, those words were the procreative seed. This is why the Logos is referred to as the Word of God. The nature of that seed was given special attention not only by the Gnostics, but also by those outside of the Christian space. In regards to Osiris, the key Egyptian god, the Logos was likened to the phallus of Osiris. This was because both contained within them the procreative seed. For those that might have forgotten, this was the part of Osiris that was devoured by the barbel, which we discussed back in chapter 9. The Logos was also likened to the Greek god Hermes. Hermes bore a role much like that of the serpent, which we discussed in the last video. He was the messenger of the gods. He could move freely between both heaven and earth like the serpent, as well as the Euphrates. He was also the one that guided the souls of the dead into the afterlife. Like Osiris, he was often depicted with an erect phallus, indicating his procreative ability as a conjurer of spirits and a begetter of souls. The Gnostics were motivated to equate Hermes with Christ because of the golden wand he possessed. With that wand, Hermes drops sleep on the eyes of the dead and wakes up the sleepers. The Gnostics referred this to Ephesians 5.14. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. The Gnostics were unconcerned with offensiveness when equating the Logos with sexual symbolism. To Jung, it was as if they were stammering in their efforts to express the elusive meaning that grips the dreamer's attention. Not even the embodiment of the Logos was exempt from this sexual symbolism. That embodiment was, of course, Jesus. Saint Epiphanius of the 5th century wrote about Christian heresy in his book titled Panarion. One heresy he discusses in that book was the Interrogaciones Meores Mariae. Young relates the content of this story. Quote, it is related here that Christ took this Mary, not the Virgin Mary, with him onto a mountain, where he produced a woman from his side and began to have intercourse with her. It says that Mary received such a shock that she fell to the ground. Christ then said to her, Wherefore do you doubt me, O you of little faith? This was meant as a reference to John 3, 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Taken at face value, such a story seems purposefully formulated to shock as well as tarnish the name of the celibate Christ. However, if one takes this story as a vision, a projection of an unconscious process from within Mary, some sense can start to be made. As Edinger states in the Ion Lectures, visions of sexual experience often have nothing at all to do with concrete sexuality. Rather, it is as though the unconscious which generates dreams is rooted in biological nature and therefore expresses ideation in terms of natural images. To put it simply, because the fundamental unifying act of nature is sexual intercourse, the unconscious will symbolize that union with the act of intercourse while being unconcerned with the taboo surrounding it. This is why the Egyptians, the Greeks, and the Gnostics were not bothered with equating their gods with these types of images. On an unconscious level, they felt that the equation was the most natural thing that was possible. If this form of psychological reasoning does not adequately prove Jung's point, one can also use the logic laid out in the Bible. When God first made man in his image, he created Adam from the book of Genesis. When Adam desired a companion, God removed part of Adam's rib from his side and birthed a woman named Eve. If God could do this with Adam, it stands to reason that the embodiment of God could do the same if he wished. Just as we said while discussing the universal ground in the last video, Adam was supposed by various traditions to be male and female, and with Mary's vision, Christ also demonstrates his androgyny in a drastic way. There are other aspects of this vision that share congruence with Egyptian and Greek mythology. The heros gamos, or sacred marriage on the mountain, is a well-known motif, such as with the Greek gods Zeus and Hera on Mount Gargaron. The idea of self-copulation is familiar in the Egyptian mythologem of Amun as Kamutef, which means husband of his mother, or of Mut, who is the mother of her father and daughter of her son. Even the Indian Prajapati has intercourse with his own split-off, feminine half. For all of these cultures to influence the Gnostics seems unlikely, especially in regards to the Indian tradition. Jung felt it was better to assume that these images of self-copulation were a product of the unconscious. The key point of fascination that Jung had with the Gnostics was their tendency to draw links between their own images and images that had been established in other denominations. This very tendency is what Jung has been doing for not only this entire book, but for a large part of his career. Both Jung and the Gnostics took the imagery of scripture and myth empirically not dogmatically, and used it to exemplify their own themes. It is this approach that made the Gnostics the original psychologists, and it is this approach that Jung was trying to continue. That approach was a mapping of the unconscious and its various attributes. The Gnostic images we have seen thus far have all tried to give form to the most precious gem that resides in the unconscious, that being God slash the Self. They have tried to describe the source from which the aqua the serpent, and the logos proceed. Whether these descriptions are valid mappings of the psyche or faulty abstractions produced by random chemical reactions in the brain, well, that is for you to decide. Before you make a decision regarding the reality of the unconscious God or self, I ask that you take in the other pieces of evidence that Jung provides. The Gnostics draw a comparison between the Logos and the Cup of the King in Genesis 44-5. Edward Edinger summarizes the story, quote, Joseph's brothers are sent home after their visit to him and following Joseph's orders, the king's cup is deposited in the young brother Benjamin's seed sack. He is set up by Joseph. When the brothers are gone but not far off, Joseph tells his men to follow and search them. Then, Joseph asks the brothers why they have stolen his cup. The servants remark that this cup is used by the king to cast his omens. The cup has the same power as the Logos. The drink that resides within the cup is the same as the aqua doctrinae that resides in the body of Christ. Those who wield it send forth a creative and destructive power. They can bend nature to their will. They can send out their omens. This cup is synonymous with another chalice, the beaker of Anacreon. Anacreon, a Greek poet, says the following about his cup My tankard tells me the sort I must become. In the last video, we noted that both the aqua and the logos are the things from which the olive draws its oil and the grape, the wine. Anacreon's beaker contains something akin to the aqua and logos because it tells him his purpose. Both the king's cup and Anacreon's beaker are synonymous with what is possibly the most famous cup of all, the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail, of course, is the cup that Jesus used at the Last Supper, as well as the cup in which Joseph of Arimathea received Christ's blood at the cross. At the Last Supper, Jesus asked his disciples to drink from the cup, saying that it represented his blood. Jesus' reason for doing this is laid out in John 6:53. quote, If you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in you. The Elenchus of Hippolytus said that when Jesus gave the disciples the blood or aqua doctrine, that resided in the cup, he was conscious of the individual nature of each of his disciples, and also of the need for each to come to his own special nature. Edinger explains that each disciple was nourished by that blood in his own unique way. It nourishes the individual nature. From one and the same river that waters a certain area, the olive tree draws oil, the grapevine draws wine, and other plants draw what suits them, each according to its own genus. As I said in chapter 10, some aspects of this book will be omitted. This is because I am trying to present the core message of each chapter in a simple, coherent way. Emphasis on the word trying. The images I am omitting in this chapter serve the same function as the images I have included. They are all trying to describe the existence of an unconscious god, as well as Jung's possible belief in that concept. I also said in chapter 10 that the parts of Ion that I am omitting will be included in an extras video after the main series is done. For now, I have one last image I would like to present to you. Jung references Homer's odyssey towards the end of this chapter. At one point in that story, the character of Menelaus recalls the time he was marooned on the island of Pharos, a small island off the coast of Egypt. When Menelaus was trying to find a way home, a goddess, or a nymph, appeared. She told Menelaus that he should try to catch her father, Proteus, son of Poseidon and fellow god of the sea. When Menelaus manages to grab a hold of Proteus, the sea god begins to shapeshift in order to try and escape Menelaus' grasp. After much struggle, Proteus relents and tells Menelaus how to return home. Too young. The struggle between these two characters is akin to the individuation process, the integration of unconscious contents into consciousness. This interpretation is strengthened by the fact that Proteus resides in the sea and can shapeshift. The sea, or water in general, is often used as a symbol for the unconscious. The ability to shapeshift is congruent with the nature of the unconscious as well, in that it has no single form but can produce many. By grabbing hold of the unconscious, one can draw from it what knowledge the conscious mind requires. This will require significant moral effort, so significant that it can seem like one is, in fact, struggling with a god. Nonetheless, it might be the key to one's salvation. There is one final thing I would like to point out in regards to the story of Proteus, and it follows the Gnostic Jungian ethic of linking everything together. The Gnossens had a different name for the god Proteus, Ipolos. Ipolos was the universal ground, the original man, or atom, in his latent state. Proteus was given the name Ipolos, not because he feeds he-goats and she-goats, but because he is the pole that turns the cosmos round. And this, of course, recalls the idea mentioned in chapters 7, 9, 10, and 11 that the unconscious god resides in the magnetic north, in the pole. There was a reason that I chose to end this video with the story of Proteus. A very unsettling reason. Before I tell you what that reason is, I would like to warn you that there are incoming spoilers for the movie The Lighthouse, As some of you may know, the most recent video I put out on this channel was an analysis of The Lighthouse. The movie is dripping with Jungian themes and images, as confirmed by the movie's director, Robert Eggers. When I decided to do this video, I was not conscious of the fact that the movie was influenced by Jung whatsoever. I did the video because so many of my viewers asked me to. In the movie, there was a character named Thomas Wake. Robert Eggers hinted that the character of Thomas Wake is the personification of the god Proteus and, by extension, the unconscious mind. Not only of the general unconscious, but also the unconscious mind of the movie's other character, Thomas Howard. The creepy thing about all of this is that out of all the times I could have chosen to do a video on The Lighthouse, I chose to do it right before I did my videos on Chapter 13 in Ion. I was not aware that both the movie and this chapter included references to Proteus. I swear upon the graves of all my ancestors that this is the truth. As I said before regarding the validity of Jung's mapping of the psyche, whether or not this has any greater meaning is up for you to decide. Thanks for watching. Make sure to like, subscribe, and share. Also, if you like the work I'm doing here and want to support me, please consider donating to my Subscribestar campaign. It's like Patreon, just without all the unethical business practices. Depending on how much you donate, you will gain a certain number of rewards. If you can't do that, I understand well with everything going on. What helps me out most of all, however, is just sharing this video. Share it in a Jordan Peterson Facebook group or something. It helps me out more than you could possibly know. Finally, if you want more discussion surrounding Ion, make sure to subscribe to Uberboyo and Jung to Live By. They provide a lot more insight into these concepts and find ways to make the subject less terrifying and much more fun. Until next time, just remember, stay yellow.